Well, all year we're focusing on learning the way of Jesus, and today we get to start a brand new sermon series, which is always exciting for a preacher, on the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul's story is a fascinating story, but also Paul's story serves as a great case study for us as we kind of wind down this annual theme of learning the way of Jesus. Uh, Paul's story serves as a great case study for us on what it looks like to learn the way of Jesus. And the reason is because Paul wasn't raised in a Christian home. You know, he didn't do Awana or something when he was a kid. He, He was born Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul, also known as Paul, was a a brilliant young man, uh, tons of potential, who was also a violent persecutor of Christians at the very start of the Christian movement. But then, Paul met Jesus, and it changed everything in his life. So Paul the persecutor then goes on to become Paul the Christian, and eventually, he was persecuted himself for Christ. Eventually, Paul would become not only the the preeminent apostle to the Roman world, but one of the most influential people who has ever lived. Paul's life and his ministry, his writings have influenced billions of people for 2,000 years. And my question really through this series is, how did this happen? How did someone so diametrically opposed to the Christian faith become one of the greatest missionaries for Christ? How did the one who sought to have Christians imprisoned or killed become one who gave all of his life and suffered many hardships for the work of advancing the gospel of Jesus among all peoples? In our Easter service last week, we considered the plausibility of the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul's story is a compelling piece of evidence that Jesus is alive to this day as the king of all creation. How else would you explain his conversion? Well, over the course of the next 10 weeks, we'll follow the story of his life, of his conversion to Christianity, to his suffering and ministry and more will mostly be in the book of Acts in the Bible, but will also, as we will see today, draw from a few passages from the letters that he wrote that became part of the canon of Scripture as well. So today, we'll begin the story of Saul of Tarsus, the mighty Apostle Paul, and our case study of learning the way of Jesus. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can take it and open it to Philippians chapter three, starting with verse one. And Philippians is a short little book, so if you uh, need to, you can always look it up in the table of contents. That is very helpful that they put those in your Bibles. Philippians chapter three, starting with verse one. We will put the scripture on the screens for you as well. Uh, But today we're gonna unpack this text as we work through it in four parts. And then I just have basically one takeaway for you at the end. One, one big idea to send you out with today. So we'll start with the first section of Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. 
For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, let's pause right here. Let me provide a little context. We're, we're coming right into the middle of a letter. I don't know if you can feel that. If it's a little confusing or disjointed, it probably, you know, that's appropriate. Uh, but Paul is, is using, in the middle of this letter to the Christians in Philippi, he's using really strong language to warn his brothers and sisters in Christ about a very dangerous way of thinking. And we'll get to what the threat was in a minute, but from the beginning of this letter, it's clear that Paul is writing to the Christians in the Greek city of Philippi. Now, Philippi was the first European city that Paul had visited because God had actually called him to go there in a dream. Okay, read the book of Acts. It's wild stuff. It's where we get the story of his visit to Philippi. Now, his visit took place during his second missionary journey, which we'll get a little bit more details on as we go throughout Paul's kind of biography. Um, but this took place in the early 50s AD. And uh, incidentally, when Paul was about my age. So after arriving in Philippi, he did his normal thing. He was Paul, you know. When you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you just see Jesus being Jesus constantly, okay? Just doing what he did. This is Paul, what Paul did. He would arrive in an area. He would look for people that might have some degree of familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures, the, the Hebrew Bible, and he would preach the gospel. He would tell people about Jesus. He would make disciples. He would help people understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. And that would result in a church that was planted that initially we see in the book of Acts. It started meeting at an influential woman's house named Lydia. So here in writing this letter, a few years later, perhaps in AD 55 or 6, Paul is writing back to his friends in Philippi to address several issues and to encourage them in their faith. Now this again, this is just Paul being Paul. We'll see this pattern throughout this series. It was his regular practice and a number of the letters that he wrote back to these various churches that he helped start were recognized almost immediately by this generation of Christians as inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore were widely shared right away among the churches around the Roman Empire and eventually included in the canon of Scripture. But one of the issues that he felt that he needed to address here in Philippi was an issue that was causing confusion for early Christians in many places. And that is this. Were the Gentile converts, meaning Gentile meaning non-Jewish peoples, of whom the Roman Empire was predominantly Gentile, did the Gentile converts to Christianity, were they supposed to become like ethnic Jews? Did Gentile Christians need to follow the Mosaic law, including certain dietary restrictions, the practice of circumcision, and other things like that? So because of their focus on this issue of circumcision, Paul, in a slightly snarky but true manner, refers to his opponents as mutilators of the flesh. Obviously, he didn't think highly of this. Now, and also, I don't think any of us would want to be an opponent of the Apostle Paul. But the reason that Paul uses such strong language against these people is because he sees this as a threat to a proper understanding, an orthodox understanding of Christian salvation. 
You see, Christians were supposed to obey the law, which was given by God, under the if Christians were supposed to obey the law, which was given by God, under the old covenant, in order to be considered righteous or to have a right relationship with God, then the gift of God in providing his son Jesus and his death and resurrection to establish a new covenant by faith was, in Paul's view, adding to the work of Jesus, adding to the gospel. And any attempt to add to or take away from the person and work of Jesus is not just like a bad idea. It's a corruption of the gospel. It's a false gospel, which is no gospel at all. This is a big deal. And whenever salvation was at stake, Paul always used the strongest possible arguments that he could. Now, there are, very, there are many things in the Christian faith that are secondary matters. Things which mature Bible-believing Christians might disagree about, and that's okay. But salvation is not one of those issues. Paul says if Christians follow this false gospel, they will lessen their faith in Jesus and increase their faith in their own works, putting, as he says, confidence in the flesh, meaning confidence in yourself. So with that context, that's the context, that's the issue that Paul is writing to try and correct. We can start moving a little quicker through this text. Okay, so let's move a little quicker starting in verse four. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> oh, okay, bold move, Paul. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of, the, of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Okay, let's pause here. So is Paul just an egomaniac or what is happening in this passage? Well, this is where Paul starts to reference his own story. And before we get to whether or not Paul was an egomaniac, we need to talk about this. He says, you want to talk about having confidence in the flesh, in your own righteousness under the law of Moses? I have you beat. And it's not arrogance. He's, he's saying that he has more reasons for putting confidence in his own flesh, and he does. Paul says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. That means his parents were obedient to the law of Moses as Jewish people. He was raised to be obedient to the law of Moses from birth. He's not a convert to that. Now, we don't know when exactly Paul was born, but it was probably around 10 AD, which means he was just a little younger than Jesus. But we know that he wasn't a convert to Judaism. He was ethnically Jewish. It was part of his lineage, of his family line. He was of the people of Israel. He says of the tribe of Benjamin. He could trace his lineage back to the ancient tribes of Israel. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says. Now the issue of his name, of Saul and Paul, is not expressly uh, articulated in the New Testament, but Saul was a, a Hebrew name, and Paul was a Roman name. Some people think that maybe he adopted Paul later in life, but according to historians, uh, it would have been very common for a man who was Jewish, who was born in Tarsus, which was a Roman city, to have both a Hebrew and a Roman name. 
So Paul could say, I'm not trying to be Jewish. I am Jewish. I have the right lineage. I have the right family background. We can trace it back. We know where we're from. But what about the law? Was Paul uh, a devout Jew or more of just like a cultural or ethnic Jew only? Well, in regard to the law, again, you're not going to beat Paul. Paul says he was trained to be a Pharisee. Now, this meant that he had years of formal training in the Mosaic law. This would be the modern equivalent to a law degree. He was a trained lawyer. But Paul wasn't trained in some sort of second-rate university or out-of-the-way place, but by one of the most well-known and well-respected rabbis in Judea. Paul gives some additional information about this in Acts chapter 22. He says, uh, there Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, referring to Jerusalem, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Okay, now from the book of Acts and other historical sources, we know that Gamaliel was a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And very few people in, in their day had more authority or more influence in the Jewish faith than Gamaliel. As a result, even though Paul was born in Tarsus, which made him a Roman citizen, with all of the rights and privileges of being a citizen of, I think we have a, a map of this, Tarsus, there we go. Um, so Tarsus was in the southeastern corner of the country of Turkey, modern country of Turkey, and then he was trained in Jerusalem in Judea. Um, but being born in Tarsus made him a Roman citizen. So Paul had all the rights and the responsibilities and the privileges of being a Roman citizen at a time when Rome was the most powerful kingdom on the earth. He was raised and educated by the very best in Jerusalem. He came from a lineage of which he was proud. He came from a city which was influential. Tarsus, not like Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Tarsus was a place where famous Stoic philosophers had come from. Influential people came from there. And that's where Paul was born and raised. Now we know that Paul learned at some point the trade of tent making. Um, now, this was possibly from his family, probably from his family, the family trade. But in Jerusalem, Paul was on the fast track to becoming incredibly powerful and influential as a religious leader in his day as well. But Paul wasn't just from the right family, and he, it wasn't just that he had the right citizenry with the right educational background. This man was zealous. Now, there are lots of young men who are zealous, to better or worse effect. But Paul was very zealous. As he says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, I don't think that this means, or that he meant this to mean, that he was without sin. Only that externally, by the measure of the law, he was blameless. But Jesus revealed in his teaching that the Pharisees could be externally good-looking, but internally corrupt. Paul reveals that about his own story, his own life, his own heart in some of his letters. So externally, Paul had checked every box. 
He had a flawless resume. He was brilliant. He was a hard worker, zealous. He was seen and known to be a good person. And so he was a rising star in Judea. We don't know if he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin by his late 20s, early 30s or not. Some speculate, given his relationship with the chief priest, that perhaps he was, but at least he was known through his uh, work with Gamaliel. But this group, whoever these people were who were advocating circumcision and other Jewish practices to the people in Philippi, these people were little league compared to Paul. So we need to continue and see what Paul thought about his background. Okay. And I don't think that he is necessarily an egomaniac at this point in his life following Jesus. Look at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now this is such a powerful set of statements here. For the one who was this rising star in Judaism, from the right family, from the right background, who checked all the boxes, the one who was incredibly smart, obviously so from his writing, who was hardworking, who was zealous, now uh, perhaps 20 years after becoming a Christian, he could look back and say, you know what, none of those things were worth anything for me. At the time, what seemed like gains for Paul were actually losses. This is worth meditating on as Christian people today. What have you lost for having gained Christ? How do you feel about those things? For Paul, he says, I lost everything. That whole rising star track is gone. All my friends I grew up with, all my peers in the Sanhedrin in the world of the Pharisees, they're mostly gone because I became a Christian. You know what? None of those things, none of those losses matter compared to Christ compared to knowing Jesus and be found, being found in him, being united to Christ through faith. Like many people have experienced over the years, Saul of Tarsus met Jesus and it changed everything. Because for Paul, in Christ, he finally found the righteousness, the right relationship with God that he had been trying so hard, so zealously, so carefully to achieve on his own. He found that the righteousness that comes from God is by God's grace and on the basis of faith. This is why the Christian gospel is so different than 
every other religion or philosophy in the world. Because everyone else, everything else says that it is what you do that saves you. Paul believed that before he became a Christian. But the problem was, as he admits in his letter to the Romans in chapter 7 and elsewhere, that he knew in his heart that sin was still at war within him. Even if he looked good on paper, even if he looked good externally to his boss or his friends or or the people in his life who he respected and wanted to respect him, even if externally everything looked great, he knew internally he was a mess. It wasn't good enough. As so many other people have figured out, his problems were first heart problems. Even though he tried so hard to be good on his own. If you have been living a life like Paul, if you have thought in some way, maybe you've really carefully thought about it or maybe you never really thought about it and you've just been living your life like this, as many people do, if I can just fix this or if I can just try harder in that, then I'll be good. But as good as anyone can try and be, we all still fall short of the glory of God. God has a higher bar. God has greater expectations for us. He wants more for us. But in the message of Jesus, we find that it is not what you do that saves you, but what he has done. So Jesus gave his life on the cross to pay the price for the sins of the world, including our sins. But he rose again from the dead, which broke the power of sin and death forever for those who would believe in him and trust in him for salvation. This is a fundamentally different way. Therefore, the righteousness of Christ is received as a gift We receive it by believing it. We receive it by faith. So now, anyone, Jew or Gentile, can be forgiven for their sins and have a new relationship with God, a right relationship with God, and receive eternal life in his kingdom and so much more. So do you see why Paul cares so much for his friends that they are not confused about this message of salvation. This is the crux of the matter. It is not what you do that saves you. Thinking you need to trust in Jesus but also get circumcised for your salvation is going right back to that flawed anti-Christ, anti-gospel way of thinking. Because if you could earn your way, we wouldn't need him. Let's finish this passage and hear Paul's heart for his friends in Philippi. Look back at verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him, in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this 
or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do you hear Paul's passion? Do you feel his energy? Do you hear his heart for God? This is a man who had his life upended when he met Jesus. Here, 20 years later, he's reflecting back, going, you know, everything I lost, garbage compared to Jesus. And then here at the end, he says, though he had been a Christian for 20 years, I want to know Christ Jesus. It's a desperate plea. It's his greatest joy. Paul isn't mildly convinced. He's wrecked. He's utterly sold out for Jesus. The greatest aim for Paul's life, the reason for his straining ahead through every obstacle, the reason he's happy to lose everything once again and suffer many difficulties, hardships, and pain, the reason he's running this race to win the prize is because of Jesus. Jesus is worth it. For Paul, life with Christ is the best kind of life, even though it was hard. Knowing Jesus and following Jesus and helping other people come to faith and grow in their faith in Jesus is worth more to Paul than anything, any comfort, any pleasure, any like preference of life for him. If you cut that man, he would bleed Jesus. If you put him in prison, he would just tell the prison guards about Jesus and say, you know, actually, things are going pretty well here in prison. <sighs> Who is this guy? If you killed Paul, he was fine with it because he knew he would be with Jesus, which was far better anyways. How did he get this way? What led up to all of this? How did the 20 years between his conversion to Christ and the writing of this letter unfold. It's a wild story. We're going to cover it in the weeks ahead. But here, I just want you to see Paul uses his story against these opponents to reveal the false gospel that they are preaching. If his opponents were right, then Paul would have already been righteous under the law. He wouldn't have needed Jesus or the cross of Christ. But Paul knew that Jesus was alive, and therefore he needed help. The logic of the gospel falls apart if you add anything to or take anything away from Jesus. Now, in many ways, this interaction here in Philippians 3 is just a perfect example of Paul's ministry as an apostle. We see his heart for the church. We see his incredible, incredible lawyerly logic at work here, powerful. We see his passion for Christ. We see his refusal to accept anything but the message of salvation based in anything or anyone other than the grace of God given through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But this also, this passage also sheds a little light on Paul's story. 
And that is where I'd like to focus as we close here. Everybody has a story. Paul had a story. It can be easy to forget that when we read the Bible and we just think this is like the Bible. And we forget that these are people. Paul had a story. I have a story. You have a story. And one of the things that we learn from following Paul's story is that God can not only use our stories, he can not only use our personalities and our wisdom and our backgrounds and our strengths and weaknesses and our wounds, our families. In other words, God can not only use all of who we are but he can redeem our stories. He can change our stories in new and unexpected ways. Who would have expected Paul, the persecutor of the church, to become Paul, the missionary, the advocate, the evangelist, the crazy Christian? Paul never expected to become a Christian, much less be one of the most effective and fruitful Christian missionaries of all of time. Paul's story proves that God has the power and the authority and the good, good intention to transform our stories, to change us for his glory, for our joy, and for the good of all people. God is the author of life, including our lives. And as such, no matter how our stories have begun or what tangled plot you're in today, the author of life can rewrite a new ending for you in Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that that was Paul's story? Now, our stories will not be the same as Paul's story. I'm thankful for that in many ways. As soon as he was saved, Jesus said, he's going to suffer for me. And he did. But the same Jesus who appeared alive and in glory to Paul on the road to Damascus, the same Jesus who led and guided and sent Paul all over the Roman Empire, the same Jesus who inspired and sustained and preserved his ministry is the same Jesus that we follow today. He's the same Jesus who is the head of the church today. He's the same Jesus who saves us by his grace still today. He's the same Jesus who was at work in transforming and rewriting the story of, of Paul's life and transforming and rewriting the story of our lives even now. Friends, everybody has a story. But may we see our lives and our stories and our past and present and future the way that Paul saw his story as being saved and empowered and guided and protected and redeemed by Jesus and the goodness and the righteousness that are found in Christ Jesus our Lord. So today through this series, and through the, through the rest of our lives, friends, may we too press on as a church 
toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. And you know what? God only knows what might happen in our lives or in this church or in this community or even in the world if, like Paul, we learn to follow the way of Jesus. May it be, Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you showed up in Paul's life and you disrupted everything in the best possible way. And Paul did suffer for his faith. But Lord Jesus, you reassured him, as we will see in this series, that your grace was enough, that you were sufficient for him. And you were, and you are. Lord Jesus, I pray that just as Paul saw, just as the scales fell off his eyes, I pray that that would be the case for us today. Through this series, throughout our lives, Lord Jesus, would you be our Lord? And would we see everything in our lives in light of who you are and all that we have gained by our faith in you? We thank you and we praise you and we love you, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your powerful name.